Welcome to Revelation Ancient Prophecy. This series is a detailed, in-depth study of the book of Revelation. You will discover just how relevant to our day the prophecies of Revelation really are. Here is your presenter, Pastor Baron Neustraten. Good evening, everybody, and it's good to see you. It's wonderful to be here again as we delve again into the book of Revelation. And uh, I hope you, um, I, I, I trust you enjoyed the first presentation, which lays the foundation, and we continue to build on this. Magnificent book. Can I remind you the importance of the study that we have here tonight? There is a need, she says, testimony to ministers, there is a need of a much closer study of the Word of God. Especially should Daniel and Revelation have attention as never before in the history of our work. Here's another statement, testimonies to the church. The solemn message, I, I played this one last week, the testimony, the solemn messages that have been given in their order in the revelation are to occupy, she said, the first place in the minds of God's people. That's incredible. Nothing else is to be allowed to engross our attention. Ancient prophecies are really a solid proof of inspiration, undeniably so. John, as we know, was on the island of Patmos and he concedes that and he describes that for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's why he was there. He was never meant to come off that island. He was meant to die there. He was meant to be buried alive. The fact that we have the book of Revelation in itself is an absolute miracle. Satan must have thought that he had silenced this very faithful servant of Christ, but he hadn't. To the contrary, there was an, there was a, an opportunity for John to write one of the most magnificent books, the book of Revelation. There's a blessing in it, or he who reads it, he who hears it, but above all, above all, keeps it. The time is near. This is more true today than at any other given time in our history. Revelation is not a sealed book. It can be understood and it should be understood. It just needs to be unlocked. And that is what we hope to do as we go through this series. The greetings to the seven churches. Um, let, me, let, me, let me give you a bit of insight here. Which are in Asia, Asia Minor. That is uh, today's Turkey, I suppose. You see that on the, uh, e the western side of eastern Turkey, that is like a, like a horseshoe. I want you to have a look at this particular uh, picture here where you have, if you start from the bottom uh, or just above Patmos, you have Ephesus. You have Smyrna. You have Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. It is amazing that it is directed to those seven churches because there are many other churches. There is Troas, there is, in fact, Jerusalem, Antioch. There is, there is of course, uh, the, 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 the churches there in Greece, uh, Thessalonian and the Bereans. There are so many congregations, but it is these seven that are isolated. They are selected for the messages 
to the seven churches. Seven, again, I remind you, is a number of fullness from beginning to end all the time. If you can keep remembering that, then the prophecies will become a lot easier to understand. And so we have these seven churches, and that's what we're going to concentrate on. Grace to you and peace from him, it says, who is and was, and notice, who is to come. This is a past, a present, a future. This is a permanent I am. This is a permanent existence. And only God has always existed. Which will be. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. I love this expression. The seven spirits before his throne. This again is a number of fullness, which is interesting. If you go to the 11th chapter of the book of Isaiah and you look at verse 2. The spirit of the Lord, that's one, shall rest upon him. Speaking of the Messiah. The spirit of wisdom, that is two. The spirit of understanding is three. The spirit of counsel is four. The spirit of might is five. The spirit of knowledge is six. And the spirit of the fear of the Lord is seven. And there you have it. The seven spirits. That's the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Jesus was a faithful witness to his heavenly Father. He could say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. We're the same. And so that is a very good statement. We have all three. We have God the Father, the one uh, who is and was and will be. We have the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits that are before his throne, and Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. We have the three members of the Godhead. And so, the firstborn from the dead. Now, Jesus was not the first to come back from the dead. We know Moses preceded that. But he was the most important one. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we shall rise too. That is the promise. And so that is the certainty, the absolute certainty that that will be the case, should we be laid to rest before he returns. And so the firstborn, the most important from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, you know, the kings, the leaders that think they are in charge, are not in charge. It is really, you can see, I hope and pray, that as we go through this series, that you can see the hand of God in the history of this planet. The ruler over the kings of the earth. And so... To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood, this is Jesus, and has made us kings and priests to his God and the Father. We are lifted up as priests and kings. What an honor indeed. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, and I love this statement. This is one that I overlooked for so many years. To him who is coming with clouds. Clouds are not atmospheric clouds. These are billions of angels at a distance. He is coming with clouds. 
and every eye will see him. Jesus said himself that as the sun comes from the, he used the, the, the phrase of when the lightning flashes from the east, he was describing the sunrise. As the sun goes around the earth and every eye sees that, that is the way, the manner of his coming. And we will meet him in the air. You know, this is a manner of coming that Satan is not allowed to imitate. And if we know scripture, we will never be deceived, as many others unfortunately will be. But here is something interesting in this statement. Every eye will see him, and that includes even those who pierced him, who, who died almost uh, 2,000 years ago, the ones that nailed him to the cross. And it reminds you of the book of Daniel there, the 12th chapter. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. That's a resurrection. Some to everlasting life. And some to shame and everlasting contempt. When Jesus returns, there will be a general resurrection. Mainly of all those that are saved in him. But there will be a portion, there will be a small portion, that wish they rather never had been resurrected back to life. And that is the ones that pierced him. In fact, Jesus, as he stood before the Sanhedrin, he said this, Nevertheless, I say to you, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with, there you have it again, the clouds of heaven. All the angels will accompany him. All the angels will. What an incredible sight that will be. And we will see it. That's the most magnificent thing. What a sight that will be. Think about it. You know, it's, it's wonderful when you, when you meditate on that. What a tremendous truth. And so, behold, he's coming with clouds. Every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And the tribes of the earth, note this, will mourn because of him. Why? Because the tribes of the earth, the world population, by and large, has not adhered to the invitation to come to him. And this is the tragedy of that last, the closing history of the Earth planet, of planet Earth, is that so many will be lost because they have not chosen to make him their Lord and their God. And the tribes of the Earth shall mourn because of him, because they realize they have been wrong. And here it reflects the remorse of the ungodly, which, by the way, will be the majority. Sad. I am the Alpha and the Omega. These are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. The Hebrew, it's Aleph and Taf. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. He is indeed. He is indeed God. And now, John on the island of Patmos, the beloved disciple, he gets a vision of the Son of Man. He sees his beloved master again. This is some 64 years later. And look what happened. Look what happened. I was in the spirit, he says, on the Lord's day. 
Now, I want to stop there and comment here. Many Sunday-keeping churches have used this as a qualification that the Lord's Day, which they, they refer to Sunday, you know that, that the Lord's Day was already put in place, the Sunday worship. Well, that's not true. That's not true. Was there such a thing as a Lord's Day? Yeah, actually there was. Mithraism, sun worship, had Sunday as their Lord's Day. Long before Christ came, long before Christ was risen on the Sunday morning, by the way. But that is not the day that John describes as the Lord's Day. To John, that is not the Lord's Day. The one in whose name, for whose sake, he was on the island of Patmos and, and, and was to be executed in, in being boiled in the, in, in, in the oil. The one that he would give his life for. The only Lord that he knows is the Lord of the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, that is the Christian Lord's Day as it should be. And so I was in the Lord's Day, he says, and I heard behind me, so he hears behind him a loud voice as of a trumpet. And, and look at the description saying, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, what you see, write in a book. Write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. The ones I just showed you. How can you send a message to those churches which are in Turkey, Asia Minor, and you are on the island of Patmos with no permission for any communication between you and the outside world? How are you going to do that? Well, we know that John was released. We don't know how long he was on the island of Patmos. It would have been a relatively short time. In 96 AD, of course, you know, the next emperor had no interest in what the mission's ambitions were that is to be uh, regarded as a deity. He had no interest in that. And John was let go. He was freed. And he returned to his beloved Ephesus. And of course, he took with him that which he recorded whilst he was on the island of Patmos. And so it's interesting. It shouldn't have been ever fallen into the hands of any other churches, of course, but it did. It did. God knows exactly what he is doing. And so specifically to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then he turns around. And what does he see? Well, he sees Jesus, but as a celestial being, glorified being. Must have been a tremendous experience. I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, of course, the one who has the voice. And having turned, I saw, and the first thing that he sees is seven golden lampstands. Seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. The expression, the Son of Man, you find them in Daniel 7. The Son of Man that comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days and billions of angels. You know, the judgment scene. Clothed with a garment down to the feet. Dignity. Girded about the chest with a golden band. Reminds you of the high priestly attire. 
His head, his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. He's trying to find the words to describe what he sees. And his eyes a flame of fire. They're full of expression and power. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. He's only trying to describe the being that he sees. His voice as the sound of many waters. The, 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 the sound of the water, I imagine, on the island of Patmos could be very powerful. And that is how he describes it. The sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. That's what he describes, seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. A two-edged sword divides. It is equipped to divide. And so when it comes out of the mouth of the being that he sees, he is seeing really the word typified in a sword. You remember Jesus saying, remember Jesus saying, I haven't come to judge you, but the words that I speak to you, they will judge you. The words that he would speak to us, well, that's the two-edged sword. And his countenance was like a sun shining in its strength. And know this, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. It reminds you of Daniel and some of the other prophets. Then they had what is called a theophany, a vision of God or deity or divinity. It must be awesome to stand in the presence of absolute holiness. Anyway, he laid his right hand on me and saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives, he says. I was dead, and he was, as a human being. And behold, I am forever, forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and death. Now, Hades, Hades in the, in the Greek means the grave. It's the equivalent of the Hebrew Sheol, which means also grave, and it never means hell, even though it often is translated like that. Keys are the symbol of power and jurisdiction, and all of that belongs to Christ. Write the things that you have seen, he says, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Past, present, future. He said, write it down. The mystery of the seven stars. And here you have the explanation. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand. He says, uh, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, angels, angels also means messengers. So here are the messages given or applicable to the seven churches. Each church specifically in need of a certain message. And that is what's indicated here. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Now this is fascinating. So we have the seven churches, the seven lampstands, and who is standing in the middle of those seven lampstands? It is Jesus Christ himself. The church is extremely dear to him. Precious in his sight. You know, as uh, 
Someone said, defective as she might be, she is still the object of heaven's highest regards. The church. So we have the seven churches. I just want you to be aware. I just want you to be aware what we're going to talk about. Next week, we're going to closely look at the characteristics of the seven churches. We're going to look for the reason why we give it a certain time frame. Let's start with the one of Ephesus. Remember the little chart I showed you where the seven churches were? Did you know that in ancient times that was the postal route? A postal service, on horseback of course, a postal service would start with Ephesus and goes around and ends up of course with Laodicea. And then as we will next week, particularly in detail, and I would recommend that you read chapter 2 before we actually deal with it. You can see that there are uh, episodes of the Christian church throughout the ages that had specific issues needs uh, as the churches that we mentioned here had in the day of John when he saw the visions. Ephesus represents the apostolic church. The apostolic church was significant. The apostles who had the message, the teachings from Jesus, that is what they taught. But as as they faded away, as they were martyred, almost all of them, but not John, he survived, but died perhaps a natural death. Uh, we could place this era from about 31 AD. You remember 31 AD, Jesus goes to heaven. He leaves behind a church, the church of the disciples, the apostles, the apostolic church. You can put that to about 100 AD. So the first century is really the apostolic church. And then we're going to look at another era. And the era will be easily identified once we go to the prescriptions and the descriptions of the needs and the issues of that church. That is starting then from roughly 100 AD, you could say to 313 AD. You know, that church was actually the church that was persecuted. And we'll look at that. In 313 AD, uh, Constantine the Great legalized the Christian religion. And in so doing, in fact, you could say once he legalized the Christian religion, within half a dozen years, it became fashionable to be a Christian. And of course, things changed very much so. They changed very much. Pergamum represents the church from about 312, 313 to about 538 AD. We're going to have a look at those dates, the significance of those dates. These are historical events that we have to look at. So from the recognition that the church was, had become a legal, a legal religion to about 538. 538, you know, I'll tell you now, was when the uh, Justinian armies, the Justinian, he was the emperor of Eastern Rome. I'll tell you more about that next week. He, um, he supported the Bishop of Rome and he defeated the Ostrogoths, which were the last opponents of the, of the Bishop of Rome. And uh, he flattened their capital, Ravenna, in 538 AD. 
and that is the era of Pergamum. And we are going to see that in that era, so much, so much error crept into the church, all predicted here in the book of Revelation. And then it only became worse. The church of Thyatira, what happened there was terrible from 538 and I've put down 1517. Why 1517? Well, 1517, that great reformer, Martin Luther, nailed his 95 thesis on the door of Württemberg. And the Reformation took a pace and got attraction and a holding on the people. When, uh, when that commenced, uh, a, a tremendous era, the Reformation. Thyatira is, of course, the medieval church. And when you look at the description there in chapter 2, it's magnificent. The seven churches of Revelation include Sardis from 517, the earnestness of the start of the Reformation till 1798. 1798 is a date that is well known in the Adventist world for very good reason. On the 15th of February, 1798, Pope Pius VI was taken prisoner by General Berthier of the Napoleonic Army. And everybody looked at Catholicism and looked at the medieval church as he culminates into the taking, being taken prisoner. And everybody said, oh, that is finished. It is completely finished. Remarkable, the Bible says she would come back. And that is very important that we have a clear understanding. Book of Revelation gives us a lot of details. The Church of Philadelphia, brotherly love, is a magnificent story, a good story, a positive one. From 1798 to 1844, and I'll give you the explanation of the date in a minute, there was a revival that we have never seen since apostolic times. You know, the missionaries went all over the world. Uh, the Bible societies, the translation of the Bible in hundreds of languages. Marvelous era, marvelous era. 1844, why 1844? Well, that brings us to Laodicea. Now, this is the seven stewards. And that means that it is us, because seven is the end of time. That's where we are, number seven. That really is a description of who we are. Whenever I ask to people that, uh, uh, what is the meaning of Laodicea? I normally get the wrong answer. The true answer is Laodicea means a people being judged. We are going to talk, explain, from the book of Daniel, from the book of Revelation, and elsewhere in scripture, that the Bible teaches there is an investigative judgment in heaven, which actually we know for a fact started in 1844. When God does something very important, he lets his servants, the prophets, know. We know that. That's the promise that he made. And so 1844, a people being judged, that is really the end time church. And we have to identify that we are, in fact, that church. So the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation, it is the theme of the great controversy. I can't emphasize that enough.
It is the theme of the great controversy. It is between Christ and Satan, and you are, I am, we are in the middle of it because it really is the battle of our mind. You can't get away from that. And you have to make a choice. You do have to make a choice. Because this determines, this will determine where we end up spending eternity. The question, why did God not destroy Satan? Why didn't he do that? Think of all the misery, all the trouble that would have been prevented. Well, God had a reason. There might have been lingering doubts in the minds of beings created well before us if he would have just destroyed Satan, which he could have. It's not about the strongest. I hope that the book of Revelation, and I know it will, if you keep following this, if you have the perseverance and the patience to study this book, you'll find it is not about the strongest. It's not. It is about character. The book of Revelation, more than any other book, is really about character. And that translates to us, particularly, the most intense battle in your life is the battle of your character. Me, you, all of us, we are subjected to this. It's about, truly, about our mind. And so, next week, we certainly will look at the messages of the seven churches, which so clearly will identify where we are heading and where we have been as a Christian church. And uh, I hope you join me again. And by the way, we, uh, we invite you to ask questions, if you have any questions at all. In fact, direct them to our website, or the, the email address, I'm sorry, waitaraevent at gmail.com, Ask any question concerning these topics and we would be very happy to answer them for you. In the meantime, as we're building a case towards the historicity of the seven churches and the meanings, and as we study the acts of God, his provisions, and the way he deals with his church and those who oppose his church, I hope we get a clearer picture of God, the goodness of God, It'll give you the assurance that you need. You can get through anything with him. Can I invite you just to bow your heads? Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that we could have studied your book, that wonderful book of Revelation. Lord, it is, your word is fantastic. It is so good. You have blessed us. Lord, help us to study it. Help us to internalize it. Help us to share it. Lord, we want to follow you because we love you. Help us to show that love in our faithfulness, in our dedication, and our desire to be one day to be with you. That will be so wonderful. We look forward to that day when Jesus will return. So bless us now, in his very precious name. Amen.
You've been listening to Revelation Ancient Prophecy with Pastor Baron Neustraten, brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio. For more information on this series, visit waitarachurch.org.au. No storm can hide that peaceful radiance beaming Since Jesus came to seek and save the lost Give me the Bible, holy message shining Thy light shall guide me in the narrow way Precept and promise, law and love combining Till night shall vanish in eternal day. Give me the Bible when my heart is broken, when sin and grief have filled my soul with fear. Give me the precious words by Jesus spoken, hold a faith's lamp to show my Savior near. Give me the Shining, thy light shall guide me in the narrow way. Precept and promise, long love combining, till night shall vanish in eternal day. Give me the Bible, all my steps enlightened. Teach me the danger of these realms below. That lamp of safety o'er the gloom shall brighten, that light along the path of peace can show. Give me the Bible, holy message shining, thy light shall guide me in the narrow way. Precept and promise, law and love combine, till night shall vanish in that was Fountain View Academy with Give Me the Bible. Coming up next, the Moore family will sing Isn't the Love of Jesus Something Wonderful? There will never be a sweeter story Story of the Savior's love divine Love that brought Him from the realms of glory just to save a sinful soul like mine. Oh, isn't the love of Jesus something wonderful? Wonderful, wonderful. Oh, isn't the love of Jesus something wonderful? Wonderful it is to me. Love beyond all human comprehending. Love of God and Christ, how can it be? This will be my theme and never-ending Great redeeming love of Calvary Oh, isn't the love of Jesus something wonderful? Wonderful, wonderful Oh, isn't the love of Jesus something wonderful? Wonderful it is to me Oh, isn't the love of Jesus something wonderful? Wonderful, wonderful, oh, isn't the love of Jesus something? 
like rain is now going to sing, I'd rather have Jesus. book of Psalms, David often recounts God's past dealings with his people. Listen to Psalm 44, verses 1 through 3. We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days, in days of old. You drove out the nations with your hand, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples and cast them out. 
for they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. David knew that a people can't afford to forget what God has done. And you don't want to forget. What has God done for you? Write it down. Remember, if you keep God's past faithfulness in mind, you'll never doubt his ability to keep you in the future. I'm John Bradshaw for It Is Written. Let's live today by every word. Welcome to Answers to the Big Questions. I'm your host, Alan Santa, and I'm glad you could join me. If you ask most people who believe in heaven whether they want to go there, they will say yes. No doubt this is because we have been taught that heaven is a very good place to be. But we've also been taught that only good people go to heaven and that it is God who decides who goes there. Thus, our question today is one that most of us have asked ourselves at one time or another. And it's an important question too, because it concerns the future that most of us wish we knew about. I need to make it clear right at the beginning that only God knows who he will have in heaven. So if we want to answer this question, we must go to the Bible to find out what God has said about it. Heaven is what we call the place where God's people, who are given eternal life, will live. Actually, the Bible says that for the first 1,000 years after the second coming of Christ, his people will be taken to be with him in the heaven where he now lives. And after that, they will come back to this earth in the holy city to live forever with him on this earth made new and free from all traces of sin and death. For the purposes of our talk today, we'll take it for granted that this earth made new is also called heaven. So when we talk about heaven, we mean the place where God's people will live forever. The Bible gives us several short answers to this question, who will God have in heaven? Jesus himself in John 3.16 said, And this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. In the book of Acts, we read the story of Paul and Silas visiting the town of Philippi. While there, they healed a spirit-possessed girl who told fortunes for her masters. They were angry with the apostles for driving the demon out of the girl because she was no longer able to tell fortunes to make money for them. So they started a riot and the magistrates beat Paul and Silas and put them in prison. God sent an earthquake which broke the prison open and when the jailer saw the prison was open he thought the prisoners had all escaped so he was about to kill himself as he believed he would die if his prisoners escaped. Paul called to him and told him they were still there and he was so grateful to Paul and Silas that he asked them what he must do to be saved. He'd obviously heard them preaching about salvation through Jesus. 
Paul told him in Acts 16.31, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The Apostle John in his first letter, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 12, writes, Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. In his Gospel, chapter 17 and verse 3, John also writes, And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I could quote other verses that indicate the same thing, that salvation comes from believing in, or knowing, or having the Son of God. But what does it mean to have or know the Son of God? John answers this question by writing in 1 John 5, 2 and 3, We know we love God's children if we love God and obey His commandments. Loving God means keeping His commandments. At least part of knowing God is to love Him, and to love Him is to obey Him. Jesus said in John fourteen fifteen, If you love me, obey my commandments. Another answer that seems to make sense is that God will have in heaven those who are safe to have there. Because if God saves someone who would rebel against him as Lucifer did long ago, we would be back in the same trouble as we are now. But in the Bible, God says that sin will never come back again after he has dealt with it this time. We need to unpack this answer to find out what it means. Let's start with a parable. There was a man whose favourite food was beef steak. He made friends with a girl who was a vegetarian. And she took him to a vegetarian restaurant where he could eat only some kind of soy meat substitute, which he didn't really like. Because he wanted to please the girl, he ate the vegetarian food on a few occasions when he took her out. But then they decided to marry. He asked her to cook him a piece of beefsteak, but she refused, so he could never get at home the food he longed for. He had to eat only vegetarian food as long as they stayed together. Their marriage lasted only a few months, because although the man was willing to go without his favourite food for a while, eventually he decided that he would rather eat his favourite food than stay with a wife who would not give it to him. This fictitious story illustrates an important principle upon which God bases his decision about who to have in heaven. There must be compatibility between the life God wants us to live and the life we are happy to live. The Bible makes it very clear that the ultimate goal of life is to maximize joy. Therefore, we must be able to experience the most joy when we live according to the principles that God has set for his people. In our natural state, without a knowledge of God, we are sinners in rebellion against God because we're the descendants of Adam who gave his dominion to Satan when he disobeyed God. If we are to accept Christ as our Lord and Saviour, change from serving Satan to serving and worshipping God, and experience joy in obeying God, we must repent of our sinful past and ask forgiveness from God. He's promised in 1 John 1, 1.9 to cleanse us from our sins if we do this. But after we have repented and have been forgiven, we still have to deal with the reality that we are sinners and we have a sinful 
human nature that battles with the good we try to do. In Romans 7, 14 to 8, 1, Paul expresses very clearly the dilemma we face when he describes the struggle he has with his sinful nature. He concludes his remarks about this issue by saying, Oh, what a miserable person I am! Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So now there's no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. But Paul doesn't leave the matter there, but goes on in chapter 8, verses 2 to 8, to say that the Spirit of God has freed us from the power of the sinful nature. He says that letting the sinful nature control our minds leads to death, but letting the Holy Spirit control our minds leads to life and peace. Then in verses 9 to 11, he says that we're controlled by the Holy Spirit if the Spirit of Christ lives in us. And if he doesn't live in us, we don't belong to him at all. So the choice is ours. We can choose to allow Christ to live in us, control our behavior and bring us joy, or we can choose to retain control ourselves, and the sinful human nature will take control and keep us miserable. So if we want to be God's people, we must ask Christ to come in and live in our lives and take control of all we do. This experience of asking Christ to control us is an ongoing, continually growing experience. The sinful nature keeps trying to get control, but we must continually ask God to keep control. If we feed the sinful nature by filling our minds with sinful things, such as immoral thoughts, books and magazines, TV and computer programs and games depicting sinful themes, then the sinful nature will grow stronger. But if we fill our minds with the things of God, reading the Bible and Christian literature and watching Christian TV programs and videos, the spiritual nature will grow stronger and overcome the sinful nature. According to some psychologists, if we wish to break a bad habit, we need to be willing to seriously battle with it for 21 days. Then, they say, it takes 90 days to re-establish a new lifestyle to replace the bad habits we've broken. So we need to be prepared to really battle with our old selves for three weeks to give up a sinful habit, such as watching immoral programs on TV, And we need to work hard for three months to establish a new habit to replace it, such as daily prayer and Bible reading. Of course, we need to pray to God continually to give us the power to break bad habits and establish new lifestyle habits. And also, because Satan doesn't want us to break bad habits and establish new ones, he'll keep trying to frustrate what God is doing in our lives. We must always ask God to change us, and he will do so. We must understand that the battle we have to change habits has nothing to do with earning our way to heaven. We are saved by the free gift of salvation that God gives us in Jesus, not by the habits we make or break. It's God that changes our habits, but he does it when we ask him to. He doesn't change us against our will. If we don't ask God to change our habits, we'll not be happy in heaven. We'll be happy in heaven only if God has given us, in answer to our prayers, 
the kind of lifestyle habits that fit in with God's laws that everyone in heaven keeps. The habits have to do with whether we will be happy in heaven, not whether we have worked hard enough to get there. We can never earn our way to heaven. Heaven is a free gift from God. As Paul puts it in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Also, it can be misleading to talk about us battling with bad habits. Actually, all we can do is to put our will on the side of righteousness and ask God to change us. When we do that, God does the work of making the change. As Paul wrote in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. We decide what kind of people we will become by the choices we make every day. It takes time to grow the spiritual nature, but once we have asked Christ to live in us, he helps us to grow in the right direction. Our only hope of pleasing God is to allow Christ to be in control. God tells us in Micah 6.8 that he requires us to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. In other words, obey his commands, love and be a support to those who are struggling with temptation, and trust God in everything. Another way of growing in Christ is to learn as much as we can about him. Thus we come to know him as we know a friend. As Jesus said in John 17, 3, And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. If we try to become good by trying hard not to sin, by our own efforts to do right, we will fail, as the sinful nature is too strong for us. Only Christ, living in us, can make us good. As Paul said in Galatians 2.20, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. While this process of growing in Christ is going on, if at times we fall short of God's ideal for us, we can have full confidence in God's ability to save us because Christ covers us with his righteousness. So God does not see us as sinners, but as perfect in Christ. Paul describes himself in Philippians 3, verses 12 to 14, like this. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection. But I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Finally, just before his execution by Nero, Paul summed up his life in Christ in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 in these words. 
I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but to all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. From what has been said, I hope you will see that while God is very particular about obedience to his commands and living a Christ-filled life, we can have every confidence that we will be accepted into his kingdom to live forever if we accept the salvation offered in Jesus. To be safe to have in heaven, we must totally trust God and be joyful in obedience to him. It's extremely important that our obedience to God must be motivated by love to him so that obedience brings us joy. We sometimes hear people talk about the new covenant that God makes with us. He tells us in Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 34 that the new covenant is made when God writes his law in our hearts. Now, what does that mean? How can God write his law in our hearts? I believe that the new covenant is Christ living in our lives so fully that our minds are totally in tune with his mind. We come to the place where the things we do on a day-to-day basis are the very things Christ would do. His will and ours are the same. When we come to that place, we're safe to have in heaven because we experience joy in everything we do. So we will never throughout eternity want anything other than God's will to be done. Then doing what we enjoy doing can be continued forever without any desire to turn away from God's will in any way at all. I would like to take this opportunity of inviting our listeners today to give your life to Christ right now. He's waiting to accept you as his child, and he will come into your heart and live in you every day. He will never leave you if you keep your heart open to him. I can assure you from my own experience that the joy of Christ's presence is better than anything you can experience without him. And the hope of living with him for eternity is worth more than anything you may have to give up in this life. You've been listening to Answers to the Big Questions. I'm Alan Sonder, and I hope you have enjoyed this series of Answers to the Big Questions. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.